Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I'm super excited. My old friend, Dale Mortensen from Touche Japanese Chin is back with us, and we are going to talk about stud dog owner protocols and best practices and how to have a boy dog that suddenly everybody wants to use. All right, guys, are you planning your next litter of puppies? Or maybe you just finished your foundation bitch and you're ready to start health testing. Embark, creator of the highest rated dog DNA tests on the market, offers specialized testing just for breeders. And while they're offering a few different tests, only the Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit was made to provide breed-relevant disease screening for your purebred dogs. It includes traits testing, such as coat color and body size, DLA diversity testing, breed ancestry, easy-to-download OFA submission reports, and the only genetic coefficient of inbreeding test available. Find out why thousands of breeders have trusted Embark to enhance their breeding program, including me, through screening for breed-specific genetic conditions, understanding traits, and identifying genetic diversity. To save on the most accurate, most comprehensive dog DNA kit, visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use the code PUREDOGTALK to take $20 off a full-priced Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit. That's EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use the code PUREDOGTALK. So, Dale, this is what we think of as a high-class problem, but still. <laughs> <laughs> too desirable. Yes. Just too desirable. Yes. So let's talk about it. I mean, you have been very successful in your breeding program. You have had a lot of very successful young dogs, and people are going to ask to use them. So let's walk through it. What are some things that you think about? Well, let's talk about where we came from with this. And like back in the day, stud services were not nearly as involved as they were now. We used to advertise our stud fees. We would advertise our dogs at stud and there would be just like, you paid the fee, you had the litter. That was that, you know, I mean, and your obligation ended when the service was done and maybe you would get a card, let you know someone had shown her puppy or something like that, but that was kind of it. But that's really not where we are nowadays. (laughs) No, it's definitely a whole new environment. That is for sure. One thing that hasn't changed is when you go ahead and, you know, you're going to have some compensation for your service. So are you going to take a POL, pick of litter, or are you going to take a fee? And when do you decide to do what? And how much risk are you going to take? Because obviously, if you're going to take a puppy, that's going to be worth two, maybe three times the stud fee. But you're going to wait four months for your puppy, Mm -hmm. and you're assuming the risk that if it takes, if the puppies are nice, 
if, 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 you know, you're right. assuming risk, but you can end up with something that would be worth far more than the stud fee. Right. And this is where the contract comes. And not just financially. So if you're a breeder, that is one of the ways that you can kind of grow your family is a stud fee puppy. Take something back that is from an interesting line. That is a line breeding to what you already have. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's not a total outcross. It's that very, very valuable new shot of infusion of blood of stuff that is kind of what you have bringing in a new pedigree as well. But this is where we have to iron all of this stuff out in advance. Yes. And have that tough talk before the deed is done. <laughs> right. If right. you're going to take a fee, if it doesn't take what constitutes a live litter. And toy breed dogs, oftentimes one puppy is considered a live litter. Right. Absolutely. And other breeds, maybe not. So at that point in time, I guess you really need to talk about the clauses. Like I did a stud service just the other day for an old friend and opted because her bitch had missed before she wanted to do a puppy and so now the litter is born she would like me to take a stud service okay <laughs> well we have four really pretty bitch puppies sired by my best in show dogs right you know that are worth considerably more than the stud fee i would have taken four months ago right right and so you know when you start talking about changing up these deals that's where your contract comes in and so let's talk a little bit about, before you get even to the contract, someone says, I want to use your dog. What are some of your points that say yes or no? Because we don't take every stud service that walks in. Absolutely. Because now as a stud dog owner, you're accountable for where those puppies end up. Because it's going to be your dog that's going to be internet famous. Yep. If it ends up being used for designer dogs down the road, or if it gets used and maybe a breeding establishment that you don't necessarily want to be associated with. Yep. And you will be the marketing point of that now. And it's true. So there's really nothing you can do about that. So you really have to talk about that in advance. So for us, if you want to breed to one of our stud dogs, which I will be honest, I truly hate, but I will do it. I force myself through the mental illness for the betterment of the breed and for inclusion and bringing people along, but I hate it, you know. I'm nodding my head, but inside I'm screaming no. So that we go ahead and have this agreement that if I do the breeding, this is your litter for you. This is your breeding for your own personal benefit of your program. And if you sell any of the puppies in whole or in part, you sell them unlimited papers. Because I'm saying I'm willing to take a chance on you. I don't necessarily know I want to take a chance on endorsing who you come across to sell your puppies to. So that's how I do it. Interesting. If you want to use my dog, that's fine. You may use my dog. You may keep the whole litter if you wish. I don't have large litters in my breeds. Right. But you will not be offering them for sale on open registration. Interesting. Yes, because then what you breed from those dogs, that carries your name, not mine. Right, right. You're responsible for whatever losers you come up to deal with. <laughs> So, okay, I can speak to the side of I'm not keeping 14 wire hair pointers. Okay, it's just not happening. So, <laughs> right. It would take us 14 litters to come up with that. Yeah. Exactly. And so, I think one of the things that I have found to be successful in my breeds, where litters are not two or three, they are 14, 
I know most of the people in my breed, but not everybody. I mean, people come from all over. And so I look at the health testing of the bitch. I want to make sure that it meets my criteria for health testing. I look at the basic structure, basic type. It may not be a show champion. It may be, in my case, there's a lot of field dogs that are not show champions. So I look at the basic structure. I look at the pedigree. How does this match with what I've got? And then the one that's more nebulous that can get a little is you look at the basic ethics of the person that you're dealing with, not the dog, the person. And that person who owns that bitch, how are they going to raise those puppies? Like you said, how are they going to place those puppies? And there's a decision point in there. You have to have that meeting of the minds. You Mm -hmm. have to have that meeting of the minds where you are really on the same page as that. Because now Laura's dog is a sire of this litter. And like it or not, you're part of the advertisement. Yep. And going forward, you're endorsing your dogs and what you've invested in are now part of that next step. And hopefully in a happy world, that's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing. That's how you get production titles. Because I mean, the more limited you are in your breeding out, then of course you don't get those production titles and you don't get to have the big impact on the breed. There was a very famous Maltese stud dog. And I want to say his name was Risque. And I want to say that dog mm. sired like 118 champions. Yeah. And changed the breed forever. Right. In a very positive way. And that's pretty amazing, you know, to be able to have that impact. But that's where you really have to have that. Mean, and then it has to be memorialized in a contract as to whatever, even down to the point of like, if you're taking the stud puppy, do I get to name my stud puppy or is the breeder going to name the stud puppy? Or are we going to do a joint name? You know, all of this needs to be discussed in advance. So there's no surprises at the end of that. Well, and you're talking about contracts. And I know one of the things I include in my contract, I don't make them, you know, sell everything unlimited. Although I think that's really an interesting concept for people that are in smaller number breeds, toy breeds and stuff like that. But one of the things I do have in my contract is none of these dogs will be sold to a pet store. None of these dogs will go to a shelter, you know, all of that type of language that contractually locks them into it. And I can come for them legally if they screw up. Right. And you have somebody that's held accountable because on that very real aspect is when we're talking about dogs that we show I talk to my friends out of the country where things are very much the way it was in maybe the 80s and 90s here. Right. People breed to each other's dogs. But my friends who go to a lot of shows, maybe do 18 shows a year. Mm -hmm. And we're just finishing up in July. We'll have over 20 shows just in Texas. Yeah, just in the month of July. (laughs) In July, right. So our expenses that we put into showing our dogs is maybe we're looking at $50,000 in a year showing your dogs. I mean, it's a whole different ball game. Right. So that kind of thing, it can bite you. Like I went ahead and did a puppy back on a stud service one time and that dog, which ended up finishing, he ended up getting resold maybe seven times. Oh my God. And yes, he bounced across the pages of the internet and I tried and tried and tried to buy him at every juncture Mm. and I never was successful. And Mm. I chased him down and, you know, it was really unfortunate, you know, I mean, it was like, well, 
I owed the puppy back. They took the puppy. They went ahead and he finished and then they resold him. Well, he Mm. didn't produce the markings that they liked, Mm. you know, for any of his seven homes. Mm. But he was a finished AKC champion with his health testing. So he had an intrinsic value. That's one thing with the males. They have a much longer shelf life. You have to be more mindful of your boys. They're going to have a bigger ripple in the pond. Yes. I think that that's one of the things we always have to touch on. And we've talked about it on Pure Dog Talk a million times, but you were talking about the Maltese and it made me think of it. Popular sire syndrome, as our breeds have more and more genetic bottlenecks, that has got to be part of your decision-making as a stud dog owner, particularly an owner of a prepotent or popular or, you know, just super cool. You got to think about that. Oh, 100%. 100%. And when you are a stud dog owner and you are going to offer this dog at stud, for starters, you need to do your health testing for whatever the problems your breed have. And then you need to test breed for the faults that your breed has, whether it's a bad marking or whether it's whatever. So when people contact you and say, well, what can I use this particular dog? Like I had a best in show cocker many, many, many years ago. And a lot of people wanted to use him, and I let them walk. I wasn't really aware that he was the only puppy from a litter of eight that had a good bite. Oh, no. And I mean, that wasn't disclosed to me at the time. Oops. So, you know, I had his health testing. I bred him to my friend's dogs, and they had stads of bad bites. And it's like, well, I didn't really know. Mm So I look at that as a life lesson. Before I offer a dog at stud, I'm going to breed it a couple times myself. So I can turn around and say, this is what you need to send to me for us to get an optimum. This dog can give you this, but this is what you're going to need to bring. Well, Dale, right there, I want to pull that thread a little bit because that is, to me, one of the most, if not the most critical things. When you have a stud dog, your responsibility to know what's out there in the community, even if you are relatively new to your breed, you've got to do some deep dive and learn what does this dog match well with? What is going to work with this? You know, all of that type of thing becomes incumbent, I think, on the stud dog owner. Your thoughts? Oh, 100% because you need to go ahead and do the outcrosses. You need to do the line breedings, maybe even an inbreeding. So you can go back and say, I don't think your first breedings they either need to be with yourself or your trusted circle. Mm-hmm. And that's when you've been in it for a while. And I've always kept a large number of male dogs because I have a posse of friends that don't want to clean up after boys. <laughs> and so we'll go ahead and we'll work within our circle a little bit to kind of know what we have, what we need to do. Because by the time I offer a dog out, it's, that, it's probably a five-year-old dog and it's health testing and it's solid where we can say, this is what we need to, or sometimes like with the beautiful best in show cocker, not at all. <laughs> right, right. You really don't want don't to breed need... to this dog, trust me. <laughs> really, you don't, you know, <laughs> unless it is of your breeding and your pedigree. That's where these wonderful dogs that are imported all the time, well, you don't know what's behind them. You only have seen pictures and that's really one And only dimension. of that dog, not all the other dogs around it. Right. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. All right, you guys. 
If you are part of a national breed club in the U.S. or Canada, I need you to listen up. My partners at Trupanion, medical insurance for the life of your pet, have just launched a super exciting national breed club referral program. I mean, I'm saying, you guys have heard me talk about Trupanion's breeder support program before, and this is what gives you access to a special coverage offer for your litters that waives waiting periods for your puppies when you send them home. Now you can partner with Trupanion directly to share this incredible free program with the breeders in your club. And the best part, your club earns sponsorship support in return for every member that joins the program. It's pretty much of a win-win, guys. If you're interested and want to learn more, head to my partner page at puredogtalk.com and click on the link at TruePanion. I'm going to say, and I do more outcrossing probably than most, right? Like I am comfortable going out and bringing stuff in. But as my mother used to always remind me, every time you go out to get one thing, you're going to get something else you didn't want. Oh, it's not the only thing in your cart. No, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. It's like, I just want this one thing. You're like, ha, 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 ha. You know, I mean, I have just been through this and it has just been devastating because I used a dog that the dog I used, I bred his mother, but his sire was an import dog. Right. And so when I used him, I got a really spectacular litter of puppies, really beautiful, all the rest of it. I got three, four OFA excellence. I got a whole bunch of OFA goods. I got one OFA mild. I'm like, hmm. And I got an OFA, like, no, disaster. Like, so dysplastic, the dog had to have a hip replacement surgery. Like, ah, (laughs) you know, where did that come from? Because... I know what's in my pedigree. So this is, I think, a really, really, really great point to make when you are talking about stud dogs and when you're talking about using someone else's stud dog or allowing your stud dog to be used. Know what's there. (laughs) Well, and have an idea as to what the criteria was behind them. So in like Japanese Chain and Cavalier King Charles Spaniels, our basic basis of our stock in the states is heavily imported Mm. well up until the 50s monorchid dogs were kept in fci Hmm. and used Mm -hmm. and even shown Mm -hmm. wasn't that long ago in dog years it was not that long ago and so those genetics when they're there i mean that's when you start to see because like in a lot of toy breed dogs monorchidism cryptorchidism this is a, a very real thing for us Mm-hmm. And in the States, it would be a very strange circumstance you would ever use a monorchid dog, but you certainly will keep his sister. Right. You absolutely will keep his mother. Right. That's where those genes came from, dude. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> we didn't keep the male, but we sure kept the females. And so that kind of stuff is where you start to find out like, wow, you need to breed that dog out a few times so you can say, you need to be something that is not giving you this, you know, those threshold genes where you're going to get, you know, if it's there on both sides, you're going to get it. And that goes for markings. That goes for all of the stuff that we want to see teeth, bites, all of it. Mm-hmm. With Japanese chin, their standard allows for a scissors bite. Well, we show our dogs with reverse scissors bite. So that can make for some very interesting. How do you get a scissors bite in a chin? Sorry, just a squirrel there in my brain. <laughs> 
I mean, that would almost have to change the head. It surely does. <laughs> it surely does. And so when you breed something that has that behind there and you breed it to a long family of reverse scissors bites, you can end up with some very profoundly rye dogs. Yeah. I mean, these are things that when you start looking at very different imported stocks that has different standards, mm-hmm. different things that they allow, then you need to know that before you bring it in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Sizes too. You know. Oh, yeah. Oh, for you guys, for sure. Okay, so let's talk a little bit, too, about some of the rarer breeds. You and I, neither one of us has a really populous breed, and our popular sire can be more impactful in a less popular breed because there's fewer numbers, fewer litters, fewer everything. Exactly, and you have a greater responsibility to the breed and to the future of it to before you offer the dog ring, but then you also have that responsibility even though you might really not want to do it, you need to really think about that long and hard because, you know, what are their other options? Mm-hmm. Are they going to just not breed? And I mean, mm-hmm. maybe part of you goes, oh, good, they won't. But I was at the World Show when it was in Paris, and they had said at the time, I think there was 200 and some English toy spaniels that had been born that year worldwide. Right? How many? 200 and something. 200 and something. Wow. Yeah. And I thought to myself, wow, wow, that is on the point of being extinct. Yeah. Yeah. That's right on the point of it. So, I mean, if you have those breeds and you truly consider yourself a preservation breeder, then you need to go ahead and try to continue this. Try to share what you have within your comfort level. Right. Right. And I think very important caveat within your comfort level, but also very important these dogs need to be bred. And if we're going to save entire breeds, I mean, you know, there's many of them, unfortunately. The thing is, it's kind of interesting that I think a lot of showing doesn't necessarily generate a lot of feeling like I want to go and breed other people's dogs. And I think the more we get involved in showing, after you've driven eight hours and gone through all the trouble, go to a show, and then you go reserve to something that is from your breeding and you think to yourself, well, <laughs> didn't I do I well? Read that this, I would be going home with a new champion right now, you know? Yeah, but that's good. Yeah. I mean, come on. That's a good it thing. Is, come on, I know it's true, but I mean, we have to confront that and be able to be happy in yes. the bigger picture of like, I'm happy that my breeding is doing well. I'm happy yes. that I'm contributing. And that's sometimes looking at the bigger picture is a more responsible aspect. You know, I mean, it's maybe not immediate gratification, but you know, it's the overall. Absolutely. Okay. So final piece, stud fee pricing. So there's the puppy back or there is, I mean, I don't think this has changed particularly, but you talk to me, it's the price of an average puppy is what your normal stud fee is. Yes. You know, and this has changed so dramatically since COVID and all of the prices of the dogs have come up so dramatically. Mm. I mean, prices on puppies are at a record high as demand is there and supply is getting less, not more. Mm -hmm. So ideally what was always said before was when you took a stud fee, it was usually of a pet puppy. Right. So if a pet puppy was $2,000, so that was what your stud fee was, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And, you know, Mm -hmm. that was, usually where it would go but now some people have a structure on that they'll say there's a top producing dog 
Mm. You know, I'm going to want more for it. Mm. This dog carries color genetics. This dog carries, this dog has a big winning record. Right. So that whole supply and demand thing. Well, when it becomes a brand name, you can command more and the people will pay it. So there is all of that as well. Honestly, if you get in with the stud owner and you work with them, establish a relationship, because I think right now breeding requires more of a relationship than it did before. I think that you have to have that or you're just not going to take a phone call and someone come by with a brucellosis test and breed their bitch and take their check. That's just not today's environment. Yeah. And Dale, I think that's absolutely on point. And I think that so much of what we're talking about right now is the relationship building and you've got a popular dog. You've got some decision-making to do. And I think we gave folks some good things to think about. And write it down. Get it in writing in advance. Always get it it in writing all the way. And then maybe at the end of it, you're still going to be friends and maybe can do another dealing. So valid. Writing it down will certainly improve your odds of surviving all of the dealings in the dog world. So it's a very fluid thing and it can go. I mean, it is like going to the casino. You know, Mm -hmm. you could be getting the next Westminster Best in Show winner. You might have the most horrible experience of your life. It could go either way. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of options. It's part of why we do dogs. I'm pretty sure that most of us do this because it feeds our gambling addictions. (laughs) It's the ultimate stock market or maybe the original one. Yeah, maybe. All right. Dale, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time. It's so good to talk to you. You take care. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you. To make sense out of everyday things. To add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box. To bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. The Pure Dog Talk patrons support the work we do here by contributing to our crowdsourcing campaign. In return for their generosity that keeps the MP3s rolling, patrons are invited to a private Facebook community. And that's where dog people, all of us together, can share, applaud, and commiserate. We have monthly after dark gatherings where we can, you know, raise a glass and provide a virtual get together for the entire group. I'm also so, 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 so excited about a very cool new feature that will be for patrons only making its debut in the next few weeks. So, be on the lookout. There will be a chance available to you to sign up for the Pure Pep Talk. Pure Pep Talk is Pure Dog Talk's weekly mentoring message. Quick, upbeat, actionable tips and tools that you can use right now. Sign up today and get a ping tomorrow. Join the best community in purebred dogs. Stop by www.puredogtalk.com. Click the box right there at the top of the page. I might add, PSPS, finally, the first of what will be many curated ebook, audiobook options that is drawn from the Pure Dog Talk archives has, drumroll, hit the cloud. 
Auntie Laura's Beginner's Guide to Show Dogs is the perfect compilation for yourself, a friend, your puppy buyers, your kennel club, your 4-H club. Shop the book tab on the website and check it out. Always remember, you guys, your support adds up to a huge voice for purebred dogs. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.